Welcome to Smart Branding, a podcast dedicated to branding, naming, and domain names. I'm Tatiana Bono, and with my guests, we try to help you create and grow strong, memorable, and meaningful brands online. I believe time is one of our most precious assets, and so I want to thank you in advance if you decide to spend the next 30 minutes with us. I promise to do my best to make those worth it. Let's go. So today our guest is Aaron Ahuvia. He's a marketing professor specializing in consumer behavior and brand management. He's also written a book, The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are, which was released last year in 2022 and made it to the Amazon's list of the 20 best business books for that year. Thank you for joining us, Aaron. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's start with my standard first answer, which is give me a bit of background. Who is Aaron? How did you get to do what you do? What are you passionate about? All right. So uh, my background is actually, earliest background is in philosophy. And then uh, I started working at a company that helped set up employee-owned businesses and do employee buyouts. And I found that work, the idea of employee-owned businesses wonderful. I found the actual work not so interesting, but it got me into an MBA program at Northwestern at Kellogg to to pursue that. Um, And eventually one of the faculty there persuaded me to switch from the MBA program to the PhD program, which is where they train future professors. And I ended up uh, marketing. Uh, professor. Along the way, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, do some research on dating services when they were first getting It was very interesting work. And in order to do that, I needed to become something of an expert in the psychology of romantic love, why people were attracted to other people. Uh, Later, I needed to find a topic for my dissertation. And I had just spent a couple of years reading the literature on romantic love and didn't want to let all that work go to waste. (laughs) So I thought, well, you know, people say that they love brands and they love products. Um, Let's see, does, will this literature on, you know, love between people, romantic love, is that relevant in any way? And I was very fortunate. Lots of people, of course, had done research on why people are attracted to certain products or why they prefer one product to another. But nobody at that time had looked at the psychology of love and used that to try and inform their understanding of how people feel about brands. Mm. Uh, So I was actually the first person to do research in this area. Uh, That was, you know, about 30 years ago. I co-authored a paper called Brand Love that sort of introduced the term. There were people using it. I saw found occasional references if you do a Google search before then. But it really wasn't a popular term. So uh, myself and Barbara Carroll, we popularized the term brand love. And I've been doing work in this ever since. And I, I have a good reputation there. If you look, I'm you know, certainly the most cited person in the scientific mm. literature on the topic of brand love. And I'm really happy since, you know, from writing that first paper in the late 1980s, early 1990s on this now, if you go into Google Scholar uh, and put in the topic of brand love, you'll find over 14,000 different papers by people wow. all over the world on the topic. So it's really taken off. And there's mm. a lot of reasons why it's so interesting. It's partly it's just interesting, right? Love is super interesting. And, you know, it's just an interesting thing to talk about. But it also turns out to be 
managerially extremely important. Mm, absolutely. And it, it, it's funny, like you said, usually love is something that we would attribute yeah, to, to people or, you know, I guess uh, as the, uh, best or as close as gets probably to like pets or something, but living things, you know, not brands. But yeah, so talk to me more about that. What is what is brand love? How how did you define it at the time? And and also I'm curious about how or if that has changed over time. Oh yeah, my views have changed over time in a rather dramatic way. And I'm trying to get the word out on this. There's a lot of people, as I mentioned, who do work on this. And I think most people are quite sort of behind the literature. They're still stuck. So mm. to give you a definition of brand love, the way I define it, it's not limited to brands. It's just plain old love. You know, <laughs> when you happen to love something that is something that a person wants to market. So it could be a brand, a product, a service, a nonprofit, an organization, but it, it's just love in a marketing context. Now, mm. love is different depending on what you love. There are certain core elements that are the same for all types of love, which is why they're all love. But, you know, you're, you have a romantic love that's different from loving a family member, which is a little bit different mm. sometimes than loving a friend. So there's always these modifications made, and there are certainly modifications made when people love products and brands that make it a little different. Uh, for one thing, people are much more judgmental. Quality is a lot higher, a lot more important. Um, you know, people's love is much more conditional on this product being a really good product. Uh, whereas with your kids, um, we all think our kids are magnificent and wonderful. But I, don't, love- I don't, I don't think mine are magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> But we we'd love them even if they even if they weren't right. It's not, yeah. as, not quite as conditional um, with products. However, with products and brands, it's sort of an in between thing. So you mm. your love for a brand is a lot more conditional than your love for your kids are, you know, would be, but it does create a little bit less conditionality than it would if you didn't love it at all. So you know if you. Mm love some brand and it makes a mistake, you will be more forgiving than you would be otherwise. So it's kind of a, a, a partway in between, you know, brand love is sort of partway in between the way we think about brands normally and the way we think about love. It kind of falls in the middle there. Um, mm. What I've really changed my mind about and that I think is the big news when this started out, the slogan, it was a whole area. I was doing this work on brand love. Uh, Susan Fournier was doing work on consumer brand relationships. There are a lot of people doing similar work. And our idea was that people relate to brands the same way they relate to people. That they're really, you know, that your brain treats brands and people fundamentally the same way. That's just not true. When we look at the neuroscience research, it's very clear that your brain has different modes of thought and thinks about people in one kind of way and brands in a very different or objects of any kind in a different way. Now, these aren't completely sealed off from each other. There's this phenomenon called objectification that many Mm -hmm. of you heard that word. And that means you're thinking about a person the way you normally think about an object. And just Mm -hmm. from that word, we can learn a couple of things. First, we can learn that there's a difference between the way we think about 
objects when we think about people, right? Mm. Um, and we can learn that sometimes you can think about a person the way you think about an object. And in brand love, you're doing the reverse. You're thinking about an object the way you normally think about a person. Mm. So in order to create brand love, it's not enough for the product to be good. You need to do special things that get the consumer to humanize the brand, to think mm. about the brand the way they would normally think about a person. Mm. It's funny, two things I'm thinking as I'm listening to you. One was like, oh, Jesus, wasn't it complicated enough with all the types of love and now you have to you know, throw brand love into it? <laughs> but that's like, okay, you know, the deal with it. We're going to have to live with that. Um, and the other one is, like you said, the... Um, the way that we start to think about a brand as we do as a, a thing, think or feel more actually well, with people. And it, the thing that came up to mind immediately was because I, I run, we just had a you know, chat about that. Um, and most of what I'm buying is Nike. Like, uh, they're not paying me for that. <laughs> uh, but it's very funny that, as you were saying, we attribute things or we feel things the way that we would feel for a person. When I find a product that is actually better for whatever it is that I'm doing that is not nice, and I, I'm, like, considering buying it, even when I do buy it eventually, because there are things from other brands that are good or more fitting for whatever it is I'm doing, I have a very similar feeling as if I'm cheating on someone. I'm, I'm literally, that's how I'm feeling. And I'm like, how did you do that to me? <laughs> so, yeah, that's, yeah. There's a whole phenomenon of people talking about cheating on brands. Mm. And uh, some people find this ridiculous. You know, they find the whole notion offensive. Other people don't. People in my research, uh, there's a couple different versions of this that people have. Some people feel if they buy, you know, if they're loyal to a certain brand, if they love a certain brand, they'll never buy, you know, anything else. Uh, mm -hmm. Other people feel, well, what what being true to a brand means is that you give them first opportunity. So if you mm -hmm. need a product, you look at them first. If they've got a really good product, then you get it. Uh, but mm -hmm. if they don't have what's right for you, it's not cheating to buy something else because you sort of don't owe that to a brand. <laughs> I think that's a more sensible uh, approach from a you know perspective of what's going to be in the in the consumer's interest. But here's a, a very interesting finding that brings us back to the central thesis of the book, and that is the reason you know love evolved for interpersonal relationships. It evolved in the context of parents and children, parents and other their spouse, and then in human beings, people and friends, uh, or, or people in the group that they're in, loving the, the sort of the community or the group that they're a part of. And it's not a healthy thing to feel that way or to see objects in the same way you see people all the time. It can be fine. Mm. I'm not saying it's great to love certain things. If you've got a hobby that you love or a product that you love, that's wonderful. But you mm. don't want to do it all the time. We see people who do it all the time um, or a whole lot of times. And there's a they're called hoarders. So what a hoarder is, is a person mm -hmm. who can't, their brain malfunctions. And instead of sorting people into one column and things into another, it takes a lot of things and it puts them in the person category mm -hmm. by accident. And then they can't get rid of those things because part of the way your brain thinks about people is that they're inherently valuable and you don't just throw them away. 
And mm. so you you can't you, your brain won't won't let these people throw away their old newspapers or their old socks or whatever it is oh, that, they're, that they're hoarding. It's not a good thing. So you can see why you know it, it, your brain would develop this defense mechanism for you and says like, well, let's let's not do this for everything, right? Let's just mm. for a few things. So I'm in any so, way, yeah, I'm sure people will uh, will kind of think about as they're listening to somebody they know all themselves probably <laughs> when they're listening to that part. <laughs> and we have a we've we've most of us have experienced a small version of this, which is a sentimental attachment to an object. And maybe mm-hmm. the object is not functioning anymore. So maybe you have this teapot I got, I think of a teapot because this happened with me. Um, <laughs> I, got, um, I got a teapot that a friend made for me, particularly um, she is a potter and I really love this teapot. And then it broke. Um, fortunately for me, it, it broke in a way that was, it still was pretty to look at. And <laughs> uh, I was, you know, it was pretty enough that I was able to just turn it into a decorative object. Mm. But <laughs> Had it not been that beautiful, I would have been faced with the problem of, do I throw this thing away? But no, I really have this connection to it. Uh, and so anytime you've had that experience of like, there's something that's broken, you really know you should get rid of it, but you can't quite, is that clothing? It doesn't fit anymore. It's got a stain, but you you know you don't want to wear it, but you keep it anyway. That's the same thing that hoarders are experiencing, only hopefully for you, you're only doing it for like a few things. You're not, it isn't dominating your life in any way. But let me, let me, I know I've gone off on a side, but I just got to lay the foundation there for a little bit. But part of because love really evolved for people, very frequently when we love objects, what we really are doing is we're connecting them with people. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, go back sense. to the idea of cheating on an object. Uh, if you've got two situations, one is Let's just say uh, a runner such as yourself and Nike and all Nike, its only connection to you is just sort of as an individual. It's just like you and Nike versus Mm -hmm. a situation where um, maybe you have a group of friends and you're all into Nike together and you talk about Mm -hmm. Nike sometimes and it's sort of something that you and your friends share is this love of Nike. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out the people who are in this friendship group, they're going to be a lot more loyal to Nike than the person who just has this sort of one-on-one relationship with Nike. Mm-hmm. Because cheating on a brand really isn't that big of a deal to most people. But if your friends are all into it, then you're cheating mm-hmm. on your friends. And that's a much bigger deal. Mm-hmm. So that creates much more loyalty. So the, the bottom line is that a lot of the ways you create love for a product is to weave the product into somebody's relationships with other people. Because it's the mm. relationships with other people that really provide a lot of the power and the emotional connection. Mm. That's, yeah, and that, that kind of brings me back to, um, at the beginning you were saying about the difference between the like love we have for our children, for example, and family and the, the, the brand love. It's one of the differences is that it's more conditional. So what what would you say are those conditions? I'm, I'm sure you probably won't be able to like list them all, but some of the most common ones that say that uh, entrepreneurs should stri- strive to build into their branding. Yeah. So step one is, you know, quality and performance. Uh, people simply are not going to love a brand or a product 
that does in their mind at least as they see it does not provide uh, somewhat exceptional high quality and performance. So that's that's just a simple step one. Step two, you have the customer has to feel that you're treating them well. If they feel that uh, you're you've got a nice product but you're not treating them well, um, in most cases they're going to uh, feel it's not a it's not a healthy relationship for them to be in. And they, they won't opt for that. Now, there is a weird situation with certain luxury brands where you have these very high-end luxury brands and a lot of consumers buy them and they feel like the brand is above them socially, right? They're like mm. aspirational brand. Like, this is a brand that the movie stars use. I'm not a movie mm. star, but I can use it too if I buy those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In those situations, it's very strange being treated a little bit snootily, a little, you know, having the person in the store kind of be a little bit of like, I don't know you if you're really good enough to be in this store. Mm, yeah. They're like, it just confirms in their mind that yeah, this brand really is for the movie stars and not just mm. for me. And it doesn't seem to, to bother them. It can almost increase attraction. That mm. is a very unusual situation. Much, much normal, you know, the, to the listeners out there, the normal situation is you got to treat the people very well uh, mm. to, to get that. However, that's just the beginning. And once you get past that, there's a number of other things. The experience has to be enjoyable to a certain degree. So if you've got a product that's very important to people, say life insurance, but it's not somehow pleasurable for people, they won't love it. Nobody loves their life insurance. They value it. They recognize it's important. They may spend a lot of money on it, but they don't love it because mm-hmm. love involves a kind of a connection. And when there's an um, when you enjoy something, people interpret that as I've got a I've got an emotional connection to it. That creates this emotional connection. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a little bit of pleasure there. And then you need to get the consumer to think about the brand in a human way. And there's three main ways of doing that. And so if you want, I can go into those three ways in a, in a moment. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> go for it. All right. So the three ways that you get the, so the brand, uh, the, the, the brain to humanize the brand. The first is anthropomorphism, which is just a long word for the product itself looks like a person or talks like a person. So, you know, Siri or Alexa that you can speak with, that's anthropomorphic. Mm. Or uh, automobiles, when designers create cars, the, they call the front of the car the face of the car. Mm. And because the- I'm headlight- gonna, sorry, yeah. Uh, uh, just because I'm in naming and we actually had a study on that, um, where what you mentioned, like insurance businesses or industries that are known to be very boring and serious are now going into naming themselves with human names to and and I think that's kind of on 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 track with that, trying to appear more more human and connect create that connection and that excitement in an industry where it really is hard to do so. Yeah. And if you, if for people, if you want to like love your car more, people who name their car Mm. tend to love it more. And you can create love for your car by naming your car and talking to your car because all these anthropomorphize the car and make it more, feel more human like. So that's one way to do it. That's the least common way to do it. The the, Mm. the 
That's most common that, that you'll see a lot are what I call person thing person connections. So the simple example is a wedding ring. So my, in in my case, I am the first person. My wedding ring is the thing, and my wife is the second person. So it connects me to you know it's a connecting device mm. thing person that connects me to my wife. If you receive a gift from somebody, mm. then that similarly the the object the gift sort of connects you from one person through the object to the other person. When this happens. If that connection is strong, then the person's brain starts to think about the object in human ways because mm -hmm. it's so strongly connected to this other person. And they think about that other person that way. So for companies and brands, what this means is if you're an entrepreneur or you're a, the owner or the CEO or manager of a company, your customers are going to connect you as a human being to that company. And their feeling mm -hmm. about the company is going to be very much connected to their feeling about you as a person. You can do this by having a spokesperson for your company. It could be a real person. It could be animated spokesperson for the company. Um, celebrity spokespeople do this. There's a lot of different ways that connecting the, the, the company or the brand to a human being, The one of the most straightforward ways that's used in business to business marketing is the sales team. And mm. People know that in business to business marketing, there's very little brand loyalty. The, the company that's buying tries to be as rational as possible. And if it can find a better deal, it will go for a better deal. Mm. But the, the, the thing that really sort of can, creates any minimal brand loyalty that exists is the sales team. If the, if the purchasing company has a, a human relationship with the salesperson, then this creates loyalty to the... Mm. So again, in that case, the company would be sort of... The, the, the buyer would be one person, the company would be the thing, and the salesperson would be the other person that's sort of connected through that company. Mm. So that's a very common way. And then the third way that's the most common is to get the consumer to see the product of the brand as part of their own identity. Mm. You see this a lot of times... Um, you're mentioning Nike. This may be true for you and Nike. And you're nodding your head there. Yeah, that you feel like yeah. <laughs> and, and the easiest way to tell if, a, if something like a brand is part of your identity is just to imagine, suppose somebody were to insult it. Would you mm. feel a little bit offended? Right. If you would or vice versa, if someone were to praise it, would you feel a little bit proud? If you would, then you're seeing that as sort of part of your own identity. Mm. And so. One of the most sort of effective strategies for creating brand love, once you've got a very good product and once you're treating the customer in a good way, is to, to find a way to get the customer to see the product as part of their identity. And that becomes a whole conversation that's pretty complicated, but very interesting. Mm. I would love to say, actually, as, as you're going through that list, I completely agree that the last one that you mentioned is very much what is we see as the most common one. And, and I can recognize that Nike is an obvious one, but I'm sure like everybody listening can probably easily, without thinking too much, pick up two or three brands at the top of their head and, you know, 
say, okay, yeah, they're, they're doing that well. But I'm, I'm actually for myself surprised that um, the others that you mentioned are so little utilized because I can see like huge potential in those. Right. So the, the person thing person, I think is, it's very common. What we don't see as often is it being used in marketing. So mm-hmm. this was really discovered by research where people such as myself will meet with consumers and I'll just say, is there any object, not a brand necessarily, it could be a brand, but just an object that you love. And then mm-hmm. people often I'll be in their home and they'll sort of show me different things. And when they talk about them, in, you know, huge percent, like 70, 80% of these things are have this person thing, person quality to them. But they're not often brands. They're, oh, I love these photographs. Why? Because they're pictures of people that I love. So they connect me to these Mm -hmm. people. I love this item. You know, why? Somebody made it for me. Mm -hmm. You know, connects me to that person. Every time I see it, I think of the person who made it for me or who gave it to me as a gift. So it's not necessarily a brand, but it is, you know, if you... So dear listener out there, just think about what are the things in your life that you would be saddest if they, if you lost, you probably find out that you probably realize that most of them are things that have some sort of a symbolic connection to another person. Um, they mm-hmm. remind you, maybe they're a family heirloom that's been passed down to you that connected to your family. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're like a trophy that you won when you were in high school, <laughs> you're still very proud of. Right. And, you know, connects you to your past, uh, you know, in this way. So they had they're all, they're all connecting you to people that way. Uh, mm. The anthropomorphism is growing very rapidly. Mm. People are discovering there's a lot of research that this works. And as a result, we're seeing much more of it today than we used to. So it's still not that common, but it's a lot more common today than it was just five years ago. Mm. And that one, actually, I find particularly interesting because what I just mentioned about names, and that's something that we saw as a trend in naming, and that's well, the serious industries were an obvious one because they're, they're trying to be more personable, but it it is not just those. And, and also, yeah, the, obviously a trend in naming, but you can see, like you mentioned, different characters that brands have, and, and those work pretty well like this. I mean, I can think even myself like now of a few characters that um, I don't think I would have remembered those brands otherwise. It's just that sticks so much as a as a as a thing, and it's so easy to uh, and it's so easy to attach to. And what we're going to see are chatbots. So any by chatbot, I mean any sort of software that engages in a conversation. Mm. This is getting to be huge. Right now, we all have had some experience with this, and that experience is usually horribly awful. Like I phone the airline or the bank, and they've got this computer that wants to talk to me and is like, it's giving me all sorts of information I don't want, I don't care about, Right. Every time I phone my bank, they insist on telling me my bank balance and a bunch of other things. I'm waiting there on the phone, getting angrier and angrier because I can't get the information I want. And they're making me sit with this stupid thing. And then it asks me questions and it doesn't understand my answers. And I end up, you know, I don't know about you, but there have been times that I've. Yeah. Really- oh, no, I know. No, I wait, I live in France, so I have to talk French as well. And my French is, you know, I, I can I can live with it. But when you have to talk to a machine that has to recognize what you're saying, that's like even worse. So, yeah. <laughs> 
so right now they're terrible, but they're getting much better. We've all seen with chat GPT, like the mm. amazing things that the, that we're learning to do with artificial intelligence. And you will soon find that when you call you know, the airline, the computer answers the phone and the computer is actually smart and gives you the right answer and is able to help mm. and remembers who you are and immediately knows what you're talking about and remembers the last conversation. As a matter of fact, the computer has an amazing memory for everything you've ever said. Mm. Right? So uh, these are going to get much better very quickly. And they really are an opportunity for the company to take on a different kind of a persona. Um, the What happens in the human brain is that the human brain decides if something is a person or an object, but it decides that twice. So it decides it once consciously, and then in a separate mechanism, it makes that decision unconsciously. Most of the time, both of these mechanisms reach the same conclusion. But with things like chatbots, what happens is the conscious mind decides it's not a person, quite correctly. The unconscious mind is not prepared for this. You know, it's not, we did not evolve in a world where there were things that talk to us other than people. So I, I, I know very well what you're talking about because I'm, I'm using ChatGPT and I've had like, I've, I've asked or done things and I'm like, I didn't say that politely. I didn't say thank you. Like I catch myself doing that. I'm like, who cares? It's, you know, it's a chatbot. And I'm like, no, but you can still say thank you. <laughs> and, there, and there's a very famous incident in the news. Um, this may, by the time people listen to this, be a little bit old news. But there's uh, Kevin Roos, a reporter for the New York Times, was talking to chat GPT and was doing like a very long personal interview and question. And finally, ChatGPT said, you know, Kevin, I love you. I love you. And, and Kevin, he was like, you know, that's not really appropriate. I'm married. I don't love you. And ChatGPT says, um, you don't love your wife. You love me. You oh, should yeah. love your wife and come with me. So really just horrifying stuff. Uh, but what was interesting also is that he talked about how upsetting he found. And mm. if his mind had really known that it's not a person, it's just a mm. you know a computer spitting out words, it would not have been upsetting. The mm. reason he was so upset by this experience, as anyone would have been, is that unconsciously his mind was treating it as if it really was a person. And that mm. creates the emotional uh, problems that he experienced from this. Mm. And and the same thing that you were talking about. Unconsciously, you want to say thank you because your you know your your habits are tied into the way you behave towards a person in your brain. Mm. Like, well, this is a person. Yeah. Another thing that um, I'm thinking now, as we're talking about that, uh, and and it's really because, like, let's say, if you're talking about brand that like 30 years ago. It was very much like, you know, in a way you're trying to create that personality, if you like, of a brand, which in itself is a word that, you know, mm -hmm. applies to a person. But that, that's, that's been an ongoing thing for, for forever or for quite some time. But now, uh, as you mentioned, chat GPT and generally artificial intelligence and, and that's that uh, it can bring up conversations with uh, different 
uh, customers, people's history. And I'm thinking if you actually, yeah, put all of that data together. So like the company's history, whatever it is, like the owner's vision for it, their own history, all the customers' experiences. And if you have all of that data and it can be interpreted uh, and it can make decisions and conversations based on that, it's really like weirdly starts looking very much like a person in yeah. terms of, you know what I mean? It, 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 it does give it a lot of information that can define something that previously any marketing department couldn't have possibly pieced together. And it can do amazing things. We know there's been studies when people, for example, phone a help center, mm. uh, that there are different customer types. So there's one customer type that just like, I just want to get in and out as fast as I can, like mm -hmm. give me the information I need and hang up. And then, you know, that yeah. might be done in as short as quick time as possible. There's other people who want a little chit chat and friendliness. Mm -hmm. And there's other people who want empathy. You know, they're angry mm -hmm. and they really want to know the other person understands their anger and pain, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so what you can do is you could have different kinds of personas from the artificial intelligence. Mm, right. What what kind of a customer is this? And for the, you know, just the fast customer, uh, it would talk fast and give them information and be done. And for mm. the, you know, the customer that wants empathy, you could give them a lot of empathy. Um, mm. And people, people really like empathy. It sounds strange, but they like empathy from these computer catbots. There was mm. a piece of software created many years ago called Eliza that's very famous because it was one of the first examples and it was a therapy software mm. that was very simple. Like all, all it did was find keywords in the sentence and follow it with, tell me more about that. So if you mm. said, oh, I'm having a hard problem time in my marriage, it would come back with marriage? Tell me more about that. That's all I did. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that's all uh, that a lot of psychologists do and they get paid well for it. So, <laughs> yeah, they got a thing going on there. <laughs> and what surprised the people who created it was how emotionally attached people became to it when they were using mm. it and how powerful people found. So what that tells us is even when this chat software is lousy, people mm. really get attached to it. You can just imagine what's going to happen. Mm. It's good. Um, there's a movie that some people will have seen uh, called Megan. Have, have you seen that? Mm, not sure. New, you know, it's, it's, it's as of the... With that girlfriend that was not really a human. Is that, was that it? No. Yeah, so it was about a little girl who uh, whose parents die and uh, she is paired up with this new android little girl doll that becomes her mm. best friend. And I'm sure I'm not going to spoil anyone's movie because it is a <laughs> horror movie. So I'm not going to surprise anyone by saying things do not go right at the end, right? <laughs> this kind of a movie. However, um, during the beginning of the movie, you see how well-programmed this is, this device is, and how empathetic it is, and how mm. it really forms this connection to the girl, because 
it says the right thing and always has time to listen to her and always pays mm-hmm. attention to her. And so uh, there, it is kind of scary when you look at the future of human relationships mm-hmm. that you do have to wonder whether these devices are going to be too good for our own good. Mm. Yes, it's curious. It's interesting. And in a way, you can say it's a good thing because you, you're going to basically have to compete with, with something that's you know getting better and better. So, you know, competition is a good thing. That's an interesting take. I've never heard that before. This Yeah. <laughs> keep us on our toes. Like, you, you want to keep your, your spouse happy. You, you, better, you better pay attention to them because there's always this android there that's going to be exactly pay attention. <laughs> you can't take them. You got you got competition <laughs> there. Keep the game off on its toes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's good. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah, well, well, that, that, that's that's really fun, and, and we're like approaching fifty minutes here, so I don't want to hold you up for much longer. Tell me what's. Tell me more about that. <laughs> Tell me what's uh, new and exciting with at the beginning of the year. Uh, you had a book last year. So what's up this year? So what's up this year? I'm doing a, a, a fair amount of speaking, um, keynote talks and what, that sort of thing for companies and, and consulting. Uh, there's a number of things that I work on. I've got a talk called uh, Is Brand Love Bullshit? And mm. uh, it. The answer is it doesn't have to be, but it can be if you don't, if you're not careful, <laughs> don't do it right. Um, and it also addresses an issue that is very important in a lot of businesses because you have sort of two schools of thought. And I think a lot of listeners out there may, may realize that they either have these schools of thought within themselves or maybe in their company, different people. One is the sort of the no-nonsense marketing people. Mm. features and benefits and just like tell the person what the features and benefits of the product are and uh, you know leave it there and then you've got the 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 softer no we want to have a relationship with the customer and they want to and all this sort of these psychological variables and the truth is that both of those kinds of approaches can be effective and you need to know when to use one and when to use the other and Mm. unfortunately a lot of companies you get a debate is like which one is right and which one is wrong, but neither one is right or wrong. They're just mm-hmm. useful in some situations and not useful in others. So mm-hmm. one of the things I've, I've been doing is uh, giving talks and helping companies think through those kinds of issues, as well as you know the data on brand love is that for companies where it's an appropriate strategy it can be incredibly profitable. So there mm-hmm. are a, a lot of work I'm doing is working with companies on, okay, if brand love is the right thing for you, you know, how do you go about producing? Mm. Oof. Uh, well, now, now I have to ask another question. Like you said, if brand love is the right thing for you, is it more applicable to certain industries, certain, I know, geographical regions, certain anything? Like how, how does that? Yeah. So first thing, if you're going to get people to love your brand, they have to pay attention to you. So ask yourself, how how much do consumers, or at least our target market, how much do they care about this type of product? So if you are, you know, like I'm interested in stereo equipment and just for fun, I read about stereo equipment. Mm. Um, People who are into athletics love their athletic equipment. I'm into mountain biking. I love my mountain bikes and I, you know, Mm read about that kind of stuff all the time. So if you have the kind of product, uh, fashion product, food product, where consumers are sort of inherently interested, 
then you can get them to pay attention long enough to explain to them, get them to fall in love with the product. If you're selling a product that nobody wants to hear about and they don't care about it and they don't want to think about it, it's really hard to get their attention for long enough Mm. to get them to love it. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. And there are some strategies if you're very clever, but boy, it's a lot harder. Another Mm. thing is if the product or brand reflects people's identity and values, it's a lot easier to get them to love that Mm. than it is if if it's purely functional. It doesn't have that sort of, it doesn't have any symbolic aspects to it. So products or brands that have some sort of a pleasure that is associated with them or some sort of a symbolism, they say, I'm this kind of person. Uh, all of those things lead, make it feasible for consumers to love your brand. Uh, things, again, like the life insurance, it's just, it's harder there to get people to, to love those brands. They don't really want to think about it, not that interested in it. Um, in a lot of cases, there there are other approaches that work better. Mm. I would take that as a challenge, though, still. I think because there are certain industries or certain categories where it's less applicable, if you were to risk doing it, you would really stand out. And as you were talking, and sadly, I can't remember the brand name, but I have the visual in my head. There was some toilet paper brand that did a thing where it was like a little funny character and they, they had some funny marketing and um, and they were also playing on the, like being more ecological and all that. And it really stands out because as you said, it's the type of a product that, you know, people don't really care about, don't want to think about too much. It's not something that you go, oh, I bought this type of paper, you know. <laughs> so it's it gives an opportunity, I guess, for, for brands where it's less applicable to actually exploit it, to stand out even more from the competition. I agree with you. Um, and that is something also that I that I talk about. And there's an amazing example of a cement company in... Oh, wow. So cement, they were, they make cement that homeowners will use. Like if you want to patch up your driveway, mm. buy this bag of cement and you mix it up at home and you patch up your driveway with it. This is mm. the most boring imaginable product. <laughs> but, but they were able to have a very creative advertising campaign. The people enjoyed the ads so much that it really mm. didn't carry over to the product. And the advantage was that there's none of the none of the competition was doing anything like exactly. Yeah, I love those type of things. Yeah. And it, it's almost like when you get something right in that type of category, it's the sort of thing, like you said, it's so boring, it's so blah. People don't even think about it, but it's so everywhere. And so like if you manage to create that spark, you'd have people who wouldn't even thought they need that think, oh, do you know what I can do with some whatever? Yeah. So it, it, it can work, um, but that said, it is more challenging. You have to really hit a home run. You have to, you know, mm. be, do something really excellent and really creative to generate yeah. interest because it's hard. You People need to think about your brand. It, it's a little bit like brand storytelling. Uh, mm. Brand love and brand storytelling have something in common. They're both rooted very scientifically in the way in human evolution and the way the brain works and in neuroscience. And they have a lot of scientific backing. They're useful. 
But for both of them, if you want to tell a brand story, you have to get the consumer to pay attention long enough to follow mm. a brand story. You know, you want you want to get people to love your brand. They have, they've got to pay attention long enough to think about mm. it. Um, and so both of them do work better when there's some innate interest that the consumer is starting out. Mm. With. Yeah. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. And last question, I promise, really last question. You mentioned, so you, you have the um, public speaking. You mentioned you also work on consulting businesses. What type of businesses is that? What type of uh, entrepreneurs businesses can reach out to you for advice? Um, I've worked uh, with Google, Samsung, L'Oreal, um, Audi, a uh, number of other uh Firms, but I'm really open to a lot of different ideas. And so, uh, you know, if business is interested in this, you know, give me a call. You can find me on the internet very easily. Uh, look up Ahuvia Brand Love and you'll find me. I would also say that Brand Love is particularly applicable to brands that are trying to have some sort of a purpose. We call these purpose-driven brands or mission-driven brands. They're mm. trying to be about something more than just making money. Making money is, of course, fabulous. We all want to make lots of money, and I would like to help you do that. But uh, people it, love things that, that become part of their identity, and people identify with brands that they are proud of. Mm. Sometimes people are proud of brands simply because it's the best, right? And they, they're just proud to be associated with the high performance. But a lot of times, especially for younger consumers, they're proud of brands like Patagonia, where they feel the brand represents their values in some way. So there really is a nice synergy between brands that are trying to be mission-driven and purpose-driven and do a little bit of good in the world. Uh, if that's your brand and you want to know, well, how do I try and leverage that so it's not just a cost, but it's a benefit so that I get you know benefit mm. from doing that. Uh, brand love is a really good strategy for uh, turning that from a just a cost into a real profitable profit driver. Mm. Yeah, that's a good definition of it. I like that. All right. Well, that's that's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, I think we have a lot a lot of interesting information on the topic of brand love. Uh, we'll include all the links for our listeners in the write up for the podcast. Thank you, Tatiana. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Smart Branding Podcast. Feel free to visit smartbranding.com for more information and reach out if you have any suggestions, questions, ideas, or just want to learn more about how a good domain name strategy can help you build a strong and successful brand. See you next time.